Good morning, church. Excuse me for a moment. Well, this is a weird sensation, having people in the, in the, in the auditorium. Welcome, church. Welcome wherever you may be. Excuse me for a moment. Um, <clears throat> Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we just want to thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. It is so, it is so precious to be able to gather in, in this place and to worship you. And as Steve has already prayed, to know that, uh, Lord, wherever we may be, uh, you are present and you are ministering and your love is real. And I just thank you, Father, for this. Lord, and we want to pray especially for our our brothers and sisters that, um, Lord, that gather in your presence today and just hang on to you with all of their heart and all of their lives. And Lord, those that uh, are fighting battles, Father, Lord, we, um, we, we pray for Wendy. Father, we pray for Max. Lord, we pray for Greg. And for all, Lord God, who just hang on to the hem of your garment, knowing that you are sufficient for whatever the battle may be, that your power is absolute, that your healing and your touch is perfect and according to your purpose. And I just thank you, Father, for the power of what you will do in these people's lives and the testimony that you'll bring forth. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, that you are our great sufficiency. Even today, as we gather before your word, to know that you will speak to our hearts and you will minister to our souls. You will direct our lives. Thank you, Father, that uh, you are all this and so much more. And we give you praise and we give you thanks. In Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Good to see you all. Good to be with you all. Um, I'll give you a quick update. Um, the only update that I actually have this morning, and that is uh, Greg had his surgery yesterday. It went extremely well. He is feeling like a man that's been hit by a bus, um, but that is to be expected. Uh, continue to pray. Continue to uh, ask God's presence to be with him as he recovers. And... Um, be with Marie and the family, and uh, for they know just how good you are, to, and uh, so do we. Amen? Amen? All right, let's open our Bibles. If you will turn with me to uh, Acts chapter 5. For the last five weeks, we have been in a series um, called Live Again, and we've been looking at personal revival. We brought that to a conclusion last week. And, uh, but I wanted to say something to you this morning because, <clears throat> excuse me, in those, in those five weeks, there were some, there were some, there were some basic truths that, that I believe are vital if we as a people are going to live as God wants us to live, if we're going to realize the reviving work of God within our lives 
to make us live again, to make us live as God wants us to live and to recognise that it's a sovereign work of God. He calls us to place ourselves in the right place and he calls us to, to be a people who knows just how, just how mighty he is, just how holy he is, just how perfect he is and just how longing he is for his people to come into him and to live a life of absolute dependence upon him, upon him knowing that he wants to do great things in us personally and through us. And this is what we have, this is what, I'm almost ready to write this down and put it on a wall somewhere. Um, it may happen. But this is what I've been asking of you, or I believe God's been asking of all of us over these past weeks. And these simple questions, and they are, do you know whose child you are? Uh, are you a child of the God of the Bible? The God of truth, the same God who created the heavens and the earth, the same God who has revealed himself to us so that we might know him personally through his son, Jesus Christ, and that he would guide you into all truth and that he would sanctify you by his truth. Do you know that you are his child? And are you a praying child of God? Are you a praying Christian? Do you humble yourself before him? Do you acknowledge your complete dependence upon him? Do you earnestly, wholeheartedly desire his presence, his purpose and his blessings upon all of your life? Do you allow God to search your hearts, to expose your sinfulness? Do you confess your sin to him with genuine repentance? Do you eagerly seek restoration with God, not wanting anything to separate you from him? Are you hungering for his word? Are you longing for its illumination in your life and the gospel, the cross of Jesus, the atoning sacrifice, the great gospel message that saves, transforms and glorifies sinful people? Is it the most important message to mankind? And with all of this in your mind, and all of this truth moving through you as a child of God, are you dissatisfied with a complacent so-called spirituality that never produces living for Christ in a person's life? Are you finished with careless living? Are you finished with shallow, superficial faith that has no influence in your life beyond the four walls of the church? Are you ready? And are you willing to exchange self-indulgence for self-denying, life-transforming Christianity? Are you, are you ready to be awoken? To be awoken to the reality that Christ lives and he wants to bring life to you that you might live again as God wants you to. That's what we've been looking at for the last six weeks. And I'm going to bring this before you over and over and over again. Amen? Um, so this morning, is it up there? Church Alive is going to be an introduction into our next series of living a gospel-centered life. And it's continuing on from where we've been. But a church alive, now I don't know where I've read it and I don't know, or I don't know where I first heard it. 
I'm convinced I stole it from somebody. But it's a question that was put to me a long time ago, and I've put it to people over the years at different times. And I want to put it to you again this morning. It's a question. If you were visiting town or looking to go to church on a Sunday morning, let's say today, you're looking for a church to be a part of, and you notice in the local newspaper or the local scroll, let's say that, in the local scroll that at a particular church, the pastor is none other than the Apostle Peter himself. Obviously, I'm talking about a first century church. We're, trans- we're transporting ourselves back a couple of thousand years this morning. But the question remains the same. There are many groups of believers around, many churches around, many of them around. And the question this morning is, where are you going to go? Well, let's say, let's give you two choices. There's the church of the apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter himself. And on the other side of the road, there's, there's Calvary Chapel, pastored by Chris Fisher. Let me ask you this morning, where are you going to go to church this morning? What is your decision? Where will you go? Okay, <clears throat> I know there's no real question there, right? I know there's no question there at all. You are going to Peter's fellowship, aren't you? Of course you are, because I'm not going to be here either. I'm going to be there as well. I mean, that's just a given. But I asked the question... Because I want us, again, to be looking at a church that is alive. And when we look at Pastor Peter overseeing the early church in Jerusalem, we see a church that is making big waves in that city. We read in Acts chapter 4, we see a group of believers that are living in a genuine godly fear. We see a, a miraculous environment. We see the miraculous taking place. We see multitudes of people coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the church where you want to go, right? Isn't it? When you look back at this church, Peter's church, they were a church that's described to us as being full of the Holy Spirit. It's a church that is described to us as being prayerful. A church that has a bold confession about who Jesus Christ really is. A church that is caring for one another, giving to one another, making provision for one another. Let me read this to you. Are you there in Acts chapter 5? We'll just slip back to chapter 4. I want to read a, a few verses. This is them. It says in verse 32 of chapter 4. Excuse me. This is now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. See, there was this recognition that whatever they had, it belonged to God. And because it was God's, it was for the benefit of God's people. It was for the furtherance of God's kingdom. They, in their hearts, their minds, God was first, the people were second, and their possessions came a distance third. 
And so we read in verse 33, and with great power gave the apostles witness, and sorry, let me do that again, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands and houses, they sold them and they brought the price of things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. This was an alive church. You see, it's not just about having coffee and cake, is it? Alive in Christ simply says this, where there is a need within the body of Christ that can be met, it will be met. That's alive in Christ. That's a church that is alive, doing the things that the church is called to be. This is the church as it should be. And please note, nowhere do we read anywhere is it imposed upon anybody to give anything to the needs of anybody else. There was no compulsion coming from anywhere but rather there was compassion in everyone. This is the heart of Christ. There was compassion in everyone. No one felt obligated to give anything to anybody, but all were moved by the same love and the same spirit of God to pour into each other's lives. And did you notice, was at the very heart of this? We read it in verse 33 there. The very heart of it was the powerful witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and great grace was upon them all. They were boldly preaching the gospel message of Christ's resurrection and everything changes. Things start to happen in the people and through the people. People were believing and the very heart of everyone's consciousness was that we have received this great incomprehensible gift of value and it says there that grace, great grace was upon them all. You see, when that truth dominates your thinking, your actions follow that suit. It's what 1 Peter, Peter would say years later, He said in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, he said, Just as every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So here's my question this morning. Whose church are you going to? Where are you going to church this morning? You're going to church with the gospel message of Jesus Christ's resurrection dominates your thinking. Isn't that right? Christ's resurrection dominates your thinking, where the gospel is front and center, the place where the gospel is taking effect on every aspect of people's lives, where it is becoming the very path we walk every single day of our life. And we recognize both the righteousness character of God and our own sinfulness Because that's what the gospel exposes, while at the same time we are nourishing ourselves, we are nourishing our minds in the biblical truth of his holiness and his presence to transform us, to change us. It's that verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 
where it says, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. Yep, we're going to Peter's church. That's where we're going. Why? Because there is this, let me say it again, there is this powerful witness of God's Spirit moving amongst them. Because, because they are alive. This is a living, breathing group of believers. This is an alive church. Their lives are evidenced by, how could I put it, by, by personal, and that's what we've been looking at over the last five weeks, personal revival. Their lives are evidenced by personal and communal change and they are making a difference in their community amongst themselves and in the broader community. But most importantly, they are there and most importantly, we will go there because that is what God wants for all of us. He wants us all to have a life that has been transformed. He wants us all to have a life in Christ that knows hope and freedom. Do you agree? Yes. This is our church. This is where we want to go. But let me, ha- let me take a step back a little bit. Because what does that actually look like? I mean, practically, what does that look like every day? I said gospel living affects every single aspect of our lives. I said gospel living is the very path whereby we live every single day according to what Christ has done in us and through us. Isn't that right? What does it look like? Well, here we are. Turn of the century, of the first century. Jesus has been, he has lived He's died upon a cross for sinful man. He's been laid in a tomb. He's been resurrected from the dead. He's been witnessed by multiple, multiple people. They've seen the resurrected Lord. He's gathered with the disciples. He's given them the great commission. He stood on the Mount of Olives and he's ascended into heaven. And the angel spoke the promise that he will come again in the manner that he has left. And he will establish his eternal kingdom. And we are here. We are here with purpose in our lives, to see the furtherance of that kingdom. And here we are now thinking about whose church we're going to go to. What church are we going to be a part of? We want to be a part of a church that is alive. And so we are looking at this church, making this decision, well, what does it look like practically? How is that playing out in their lives now? Well, if you go back to Acts chapter 3, don't do it. Don't go, go back later and read it. But you go back to Acts chapter 3. It's yesterday. It's, it's, it's yesterday for our little exercise this morning. Yesterday morning, Peter and John got up. You'll be meeting them in church later. But they got up and yesterday morning, they, they went to the temple. And in the temple, they came across a man who had been lame from birth He had to be carried to the temple gate every single day of his life. He's over 40 years old. He's been laid down in front of that that beautiful gate that it is called and he would beg for money. He begs from Peter and John as they go by. But Peter had no money to give him. So he looks down upon him. He prays for him in the name of Jesus Christ and he is raised from the dead. There was no ambiguity about it whatsoever. A miraculous healing has occurred and God's power has been clearly evidenced. You read that, you go, yeah, that's the church I want to be a part of, right? That's the church that I'm going to, right? Well, then it gets better because then Peter preached the gospel to all that witnessed this great miracle. 
And he was, he was to point, he was clear, he was regarding the condition of their own souls. This amazing, this amazed crowd, he told them that they had disowned and they had crucified the very Son of God, the Lord of glory. But still, he tells them that God offers salvation to anyone who will place their faith in him, in his Son, who has been raised from the dead in power and glory. And the number of believers swelled and grew. This young church is now 5,000 people strong. Yep, hallelujah, we're saying now, this is the church I want to go to, right? Absolutely. But now the religious leaders that are standing around watching this, they don't like what they see. They're not happy about this. And so they arrest Peter and John and they throw them. Remember, this was yesterday. And they throw them in prison overnight. And you go, okay, okay, I'm still in. I'm still in. We've got to expect a little bit of persecution. Some opposition's going to come. I'm still in. Well, the next day, which would be this morning, Peter and John, early in the morning, they are interrogated about what had happened the day before, yesterday. They're interrogated about what had happened and under whose authority that they were speaking. Their answer was with incredible boldness. They simply looked straight back at their interrogators and said, this was done in the name of Jesus Christ, by his authority, whom you have killed. Whom you have killed. And they didn't appreciate that at all. So they told Peter and John that they must never preach in this name of Jesus ever again. And then they can go because the the miracle was undeniable and the swelling of the supporters was unquestionable. So you never preach in this name of Jesus again and then you can go. And of course, they refused, didn't they? They refused to stop preaching. They responded with this most arresting statement. It's in Acts chapter 4 and verse 19, where they simply said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you be the judge. But we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and the things that we have heard. And so they threatened them again and they set them free. And now you're going, yep, fully convinced. This is victory. This is what God does in a church that is alive. This is my church. So what do they do? They make their way back to their fellow believers and then they shared with them everything that happened. What did they do? They gathered, they began to praise God. What did they do? They began to praise God and then they began to pray for more boldness so they can go out again and face the adversities that had tried to silence them. And at the end of it all, this entire experience only to serve to bond this group of believers together with a greater sense of grace, love and a sense of community for one another. It's an incredible growth spurt that takes place through this whole experience and you are waiting out the front door waiting to get inside right now, aren't you? Because this is the church you want to be a part of. Because this is the church that is alive. And while that is absolutely true, And we're all right to want to be a part of such a church. We need to know that what happened in chapter 3 and and what what we've revealed to us in chapter 4 is followed by chapter 5. And what we need to realise, chapter 5 is just as important as what happened in the previous chapters. And chapter 5 begins with death. It begins with the death of Ananias and Sapphira. We'll get to their story in a minute. But what we need to see, 
that in their demise, it served in a sense as a catalyst for this church that was living, that is alive. Now, don't misunderstand me. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that their death was the agent of their growth, but rather when God removed their presence, in which is what he was doing, he was preventing deceit from entering in. He, he was rejecting, it was God rejecting the perversity of vanity. It was God exposing the hypocrisy that they were bringing with them. You see, these are the, these are the insidious attitudes that cripple the victorious progress of the people of God. These are the very things, and we must know this, Christian. These are the very, very things that corrupt the purity and holiness of the gospel of Jesus Christ that every one of us, he wants every one of us to be living in every single day. And so chapter 5 begins with these solemn words when it says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession. Let me tell you right off the bat, right off the bat, Hypocrisy cannot produce life. We want to be a church that is alive. Hypocrisy cannot produce life. Let's read this. In verse, well, let's go back to verse 36. I think we read that far, didn't we? It says this. And Joseph who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus. Having land sold and brought the money, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man, chapter 5, verse 1, named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So let's leave it there. So we have, for now, we have this picture of the purity and holiness of the church where great things have been happening. A church that you want to be a part of, but is now being attacked infiltrated, however you want to view it, by the corruption of hypocrisy. We're not told directly, but it appears that Ananias and Sapphira had seen the the generosity of Barnabas and maybe others. And no doubt how greatly he was respected amongst the brethren for his giving heart. And it would appear that they clearly wanted some of this respect. And so likewise, they sell a parcel of land and they give the appearance that they were giving everything to God when in fact they were not. Now, according to the record, they didn't come in. Please note this as well. They didn't come in and say, hey, we're going to give everything for the sake of Christ. They didn't come in saying that. They didn't come in broadcasting that in any any way at all. Excuse me. But rather... They simply allowed people to believe that about them. It's called acting, is what it is. It's where we get our description for hypocrisy from. 
It's when a person is presenting themselves as one thing, when in reality they are something else, allowing people to believe something about you that simply is not true. And we have to know that hypocrisy, importantly, is the one thing that Christ would not abide in so-called confessing believers. You, have to, you just have to go back and read Matthew chapter 23 to get an understanding of his disdain for it. Eight times he brings that charge against the religious hypocrites. And by way of contrast, it's interesting to note that everywhere else he is reaching out in compassion towards a person that is captured by sin. We read that over and over and over again. He loves the sinner. He calls the sinner to repentance. But the hypocrite who is self-righteous and is blinded by their own prideful conceit only draws his condemnation. So let's, let's read the rest of the account. So they're at this church that you want to be a part of, right? They brought this offering, hoping that they're going to be honoured for it. And now it gets really serious. But Peter said, are you there in verse 3? But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And afterwards, was it sold? It was sold. Was it not in your own control? So again, there's no pressure from anyone, from the church, for anyone to have to give anything. Please take note of that. He says, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but you have lied to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all of those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yeah, sure, we did. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they're going to carry you out also. Then immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out, buried her by her husband. Hey, look, there's a lot here I don't understand. There's a lot here I can't answer. But let me ask you again, is this the church you want to go to? Is this still the church you want to go to? These guys said, hey, it's all for the Lord. It's all for the Lord. But they were lying. And God took them home right there and then. Just imagine if God dwelt with us like dealt with us like that. Or if he dwelt with us like that. I mean you gather to worship, right? We gather to worship him. Wherever it may be, wherever you are, we gather to worship him. And we believe that God meets us where we gather. 
We believe that God has met us in this place, don't we? And we believe that God deserves. You heard Steve say, you hear Steve say every single, every time we gather to worship, he says, you deserve all of our devotion. You deserve all of our praise. You deserve all of our submission. And you believe that, don't you, Christian? God deserves it all. Of course you do. That's why you sing those songs. That's why you sing those songs. Oh, to Jesus, I surrender, right? But wait a minute, wait a minute. We make these promises to God. Do we really mean it? Do we really intend to surrender every aspect of our lives to him? Because if we don't, and we are just playing the part then is our hypocrisy any different to that of Ananias and Sapphira? And, and I don't say these to bring condemnation to anybody. But if that were genuinely the case, then why, why are people not being dragged out of church every Sunday morning? You know? Again, there's a lot I don't understand here. But what I do recognise here, and I think we all need to recognise it, is the obvious value that God places upon purity, that God places upon holiness in his people, and God's hatred for hypocrisy. But it's interesting, you know, we've got to step back a little bit, because it's interesting, when you look at church history, you look at God's people, and we find that when God is beginning to do something new in his plan of salvation... And his plan of sanctification and setting these people apart. And I pray that that is what's happening in our hearts. And I pray that's what's happening in our church. That God is doing a new thing amongst us. A setting us apart. Not a new thing in a sense that it's different. But in a new thing in a sense that he's bringing life again to us. And setting us apart for his glorious purpose. But the interesting thing is that when God does that. And when God has historically done that through his church. He sets a high standard. He sets a high standard for subsequent generations to build upon. And the example is always holiness. It's never changed. When you look at the beginning of the Old Testament sacrificial system, when God had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he was establishing them as a nation. He'd given them these law on Mount Sinai. And now he was preparing the whole sacrificial system. The tabernacle has been built. All the elements of the tabernacle worship have been, have been prepared. And the priest and the servants, uh, the, the, the Levites have been anointed. They're ready to serve God. It's at the very beginning. And then Aaron, the high priest, has two sons. They Nadab and Abihu. What did they do? They disregarded the strict instructions of the order of God's worship, God took them home. Go and read about it in Leviticus chapter 10. See, the same thing when 40 years later and the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan River and they enter into the promised land. And the very first battle they faced was against a, a fortified city called Jericho. And God says, I'm going to give you the victory. I'm going to give you the victory. And you be sure you don't touch any aspect of this victory because you need to know and everybody 
else after you needs to know that they can trust in me and me alone to bring victory to their lives. So don't touch anything. And they marched around that thing for seven days. They blew, they blew their trumpets, they cried out to God, and the walls come crumbling down. God gave them the victory. They rejoiced and they worshipped God. What an amazing thing. And the command was, don't you touch that. This is my victory for you. You need to know it and your children need to know it. But there was a man named Achan who didn't listen. And he touched the spoils and it brought deadly consequences to him and his family. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 7 and verse 9. But here's the thing. The Bible pages are, are marked by such sin that costs people so greatly. You know, we go back to the beginning, eating some forbidden fruit, looking back at a city, hitting a rock, touching the Ark of the Covenant, and here, lying about a real estate deal. In each instant, in each instant, just as here, things take place in the time when God is beginning something new and something great. A time these types of impurity and disobedience, if left unchecked, could well have corrupted the entire purpose of God from the foundation, no, from the root up. And so we see God protects this because he wants his church to build upon a foundation. Again, never changes upon a foundation of purity and holiness. Sure, we see hypocrisy in the church today, don't we? Of course we do. There's Ananias and Sapphira in every single one of us. But the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ that he built upon is one that is pure and is one that is powerful and one that is vibrantly alive. And we look at the church here this morning whose love for one another won't allow anyone to fall by the wayside or to go without we are looking at a church where the gospel message of Jesus Christ's resurrection dominates their thinking, where the gospel is front and centre and is an effective in every aspect of our lives. Let me say it again. It's the very path we walk every single day. And the reason that this episode is held up before us is to remind us that without purity, there is no power to live revival life, to live again, to be a part, to be a church that is alive. You know what? I think about this, and to me it's really simple. And we argue over a lot of complicated, non-simple things. And we make them very complicated. You know that? I've done it for so many years of my life, you know. So many years of my life. But I, there's a lot of things I don't argue about anymore. I used to. I used to argue about all sorts of teachings. But you know what I've discovered? An argument, well, it's just that. It's an argument. That's all it is. It's the batting, it's, it's batting forth, back and forth of, of, of deeply entrenched 
positions. And I stopped arguing a long time ago. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'll fight for the gospel of salvation. That's what I'm doing right now. I fight for the gospel of salvation. The fact that all men, all people are sinners who need forgiveness. And that the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross is the only way whereby we might be forgiven. And his resurrection provides life everlasting for those of us that will follow him. And that this salvation is a gift of God that we must receive by faith. On these things I live and die. I live and die on those things. And here's the thing. I don't believe that me winning or losing an argument on any peripheral issue has any effect upon what God is going to or what God is not going to do. But I will continue, as long as I have breath in these lungs, to be able to challenge you towards purity in your relationship between yourself and your God and before the mankind around you, before your fellow man. I will continue to challenge you to walk circumspectly, to hold yourself up as a righteous, holy citizen of the family of God, a child of God who knows who their father is. And I will challenge you to guard yourself against giving yourself into foolish pleasures that invite corruption into your lives because I know that where there is purity, I know that where there is holiness, God sovereignly moves to bring life-giving power and it makes the church alive. I know that. And that's what I fight for. And that's why I preach. And that's what I to see take place in my own heart and in all of the hearts of the people of God. Notice something. Notice what it did. Look, I've given you my message this morning, but you've got to notice what it did. It says in verse 11 of chapter 5, And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought amongst the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, it says. So the relationship between purity and holiness and a life that is alive, a church that is alive, is so very, very clear. Now look what else. Now I love this. Now you might think this is not good, but I love what it says next. It says in verse 13, Yet none of the rest dared to join them. But what did it say? But the people esteemed them highly. This is talking about the reputation that was created around this church that's alive. People didn't necessarily want to join them right there and then, but they respected them. They looked at these Christians and they said this in their hearts. They said, look, hey, I'm not ready to become a part of this, this, this group. I'm not ready to become a Christian right now. But if I ever did want to go down that path, then that's a church that I want to be a part of. And that's the church I want to go to. Why? Why? Because they could see that purity and holiness and integrity meant something to that church. So much better, isn't it? So much better than the unbelieving world looking at us and saying, what a bunch of hypocrites. So purity brought power to the church. 
purity, holiness made the church alive. It brought respect from the unbelieving world. But most importantly, and this is what revival is all about, make the church live again so that people get saved. So the church becomes the arm of God and the power of God in the community around us that he wants us to be. Most importantly, still others got saved. Verse 14, let me finish here this morning. Verse 14, and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. People saw the purity of a Christian and that that was something to be valued. They saw it in their hearts. They saw it in their their fellowship. They saw it in their actions. They saw it in their movements throughout the community. It affected every aspect of their life. You see, the Christian hypocrite offers nothing to the unbelieving world. They see a person professing Christ who is living just the same as they are and they cannot respect that. And they know that has no power to change their lives because they're just the same, because they're exactly the same. In fact, a Christian hypocrite is the most dangerous thing on the face of this planet. You know that? It's the most dangerous thing on the face of this planet. You know why? Because it causes people to conclude that the Christian life has nothing different to offer. It makes no difference. If we're going to live again, if this church is going to be alive, we need purity. We need holiness. We need to set ourselves apart. We need to live again. Again, remember from last week? Remember I talked about our personal little circle? The place in which we live? Forget about everybody else and what everybody else is doing. But the person that we are, who are we? Can I ask you again? Who are we? We are imitators of God as dear children and we know that we are his we walk in love as Christ has also loved us there is no fornication there is no uncleanliness there is no covetousness there is no filthy foolish talk or coarse jesting because we know that should not even be named amongst us It's not fitting of a child of the king. It's not a fitting of the child of the holy, righteous God. But rather, with grateful hearts, we walk as children of light and goodness and righteousness and truth and wisdom. We are filled with the Spirit of God. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Because that's what makes a church alive. Are you ready for the next few weeks? As we start to talk about what the gospel-centered living is all about? Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a wonderful thing. What a glorious thing to see how you move in the lives, in the hearts, in the minds of your people who set themselves apart for your glorious purpose. I just pray, Father God, you would continue to speak to us as individuals, that you would continue to remind us just whose children we are, that you would call us into that deep, deep place of personal relationship with you.
that we would allow you to search our hearts, allow you, Lord, to bring and expose, Father, those things that we need to not only confess, but to confess and turn away from, that we would be a people that are seeking restoration with a holy, righteous God, longing and desiring to live not only for you, but with you and to know your presence within our lives, that we would be such people who are made, Lord God, Lord, awake and aware of your presence, Father. Rise us, arise us, Lord, from our slumber. Let us know that you are with us, Lord God, that you are present, that you are in this place, holy God. In Jesus' name, Father, thank you. Thank you for building your church. Work in us today. And Lord, if we're in this place, or if we're gathered anywhere, and we've been spoken to by these words, and there is corruption in our lives, there's hypocrisy in our lives, there's immorality in our lives, and we're just playing a part. Father in heaven, in Jesus' name, shine the light of your conviction upon our hearts. Lord, don't condemn us, but lift us up. Forgive us, Father. Lift us up to that place of repentance, Lord. Bring us to that place. Make our hearts alive. Cause us to cry out to you, Lord, in brokenness, seeking your fullness in our lives, Lord God. Thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you, holy God. Precious Lord, be who you want to be, need to be, must be in our lives because Christ has died for us. And if you have the communion emblems with you and you are ready to partake right now, we look to the perfect life of Jesus Christ, the, extra, the supreme example of holiness in this world. Thank you, Father, for the testimony, Lord, not only of the salvation, but also of the life that he lived that we might follow him, we might walk in his steps. Thank you, Father, for the blood that was shed that has washed us clean of all unrighteousness, of all iniquity, of every time we've missed the mark. Thank you, Father, that you've forgiven us. Thank you, Lord, for a body that was lifted up, the very bread of life that we can feed upon and know that eternal life at work within us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name for what you have done and continue to do and purpose to do in each and every one of us. Thank you, Father, for the sin that has been forgiven, Lord. Thank you for the righteousness that has been revealed. Thank you, Father, for the blood that has washed us clean. Let's take the cup together. Thank you for the bread of life that brings life eternal. Thank you, Lord.